want to welcome our satellites. <laughs> I want to welcome you. Glad that you're with us. If you have your Bible, open it to Romans chapter 4 because that's where we are. And I know if you have been doing the study, if you've been with us, Paul is beginning to sound really redundant, right? But Paul is passionate that this early church, and I believe us too, that we would understand. Remember, he sets out in the beginning of Romans and he gives us his thesis that um, the gospel is the power of God. It reveals the righteousness of God to us. And what he wants to make sure they understand, and he's going to say it like 18 times from 14 different angles, that your righteousness your right standing with God, your justification, your approval from God, your redemption that you have been brought into and bought into relationship with God is completely by grace. It is not by works. And it was not by works in the Old Testament, which we're going to look at today, and it's not by works today. And he just wants to keep driving that home, driving that home, driving that home. And he tells us that we have this condition that we don't just commit sins, but we have a condition of sin. That we live under the power of sin. Remember we talked about that. But then there's such good news that we looked at last week. Oh, how fun was it to look at the greatest moment in all of history in all of time and space, that God himself would come, that he would become a man, 100% man, while, while retaining 100% God, right? And that he would live the life we could never live, a life of perfect obedience, that made it possible for him to be the unblemished sacrifice for us. And that he would die a death that we couldn't die. And part of the reason that we couldn't die, I mean, we, we could die, but, but we could not absorb the wrath of God, the penalty for sin that Jesus took upon himself. What good news that is, right? That sin has been conquered, that Jesus has made a way by grace through faith, that when we place our faith and our trust in Jesus, and not just in Jesus as a concept, but Jesus as a reality, and, and what he has done through his life, death, and resurrection, we are now, as the scripture tells us, no longer slaves to sin. But we have become mastered now by righteousness. But here's, here's something that I think we bump up against. So we've been freed from sin. Jesus has conquered sin. But we still battle it, right? Romans 6, Paul will say that the wages of sin is death, and that death has been conquered. And he says the wages of sin is death, and the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And so there's a temptation to think about this conquering of sin, this freedom, to be something that makes a way for eternal life, which is a great gift, a great hope, that this isn't the end of the story, that, that there will be a day when we don't live with the consequences of sin 
our, our own sin and others around us, this effect of sin on all of creation. But I think sometimes we can revert to thinking that the hope that we have is just eternal hope. And we miss that it's not just eternal hope. It's not just eternally being rescued from sin. It's a hope that we have today. That when we come to faith in Christ, when you become a Christian, something radically different happens to you. You are transformed in such a way that you no longer approach temptation and sin in the same way. But I think we tend to continue to approach sin and temptation in the same way. Now, when you become a Christian, the Spirit comes to live in you, and so you become more aware of sin. I believe that to be true. You have a heightened awareness of sin. But you might want to default and defer back to that, it, well, it just can't be too big a deal because I just can't stop, I can't change myself, um, and, and, and I just am going to have to trust that it's all going to work out in the end. Or what a lot of religious people do is we just keep trying to suck it up. We approach temptation with this like, oh, I'm gonna, oh God, I gotta try harder, I gotta, I got, and we, we believe that we've been saved by grace through faith, but we've gotta live the Christian life by works. And Paul is gonna turn that upside down today. Paul's gonna give us a pathway. How do we face temptation differently? How do we look at sin differently? So let's dive in. It's good news. It's more good news. Starting in um, Romans chapter 4. Let me pray. Father, I do pray. I pray that this word that is so important, this word that is so significant, this passage, this, this, even this chapter of Romans, which is so tempting to just kind of skip because uh, it just seems so redundant and so all over the place. God, God, would we let this truth sink into us? Would your spirit do a work that my words could never do? Would you transform our minds in the way that we think? Because the way that we think is the way that we live. And would that transformation of the mind move into our heart and move into our life? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. So Paul says this, verse 1, when, what, what then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? What did he discover about uh, our justification, our righteousness? Verse 2, if in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, right? I deserve my righteousness. I, I deserve this justification, but not before God. Verse 3, what does the scripture say? And here's some things to underline. Abraham believed God and it was, this is what you underline, credited to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. This is what the scripture says all the way back in Genesis. What Paul is doing is he's now saying, hey, Jewish friends, you're, you may think, well, yeah, now this new thing with Jesus, 
gives us salvation by grace through faith. But you know, back in the day, we worked for our justification. See, the Old Testament, that's where you worked, you had to earn your salvation, and then Jesus brought grace, and Paul's going to go, hey, by the way, I'm going to actually, I'm going to look at some of your heroes, some of my, he's Jewish, some of my heroes. I'm going to look at Abraham. And what was said about Abraham? Guess what? What was said about Abraham was that it was credited to him as righteousness. Verse 4, now to the one who works... Wages are not credited, right, as a gift, but as an obligation. You're owed something. God owes me. However, to the one who does not work but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, some translations say the wicked, this is really profound. God justifies, and he's going to say more about this in chapter 5, God justifies us Not when we're good, but when we're ungodly. While we're still in our sin. While we're still wicked. God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. Abraham was not not justified by works. There was no earning. He had nothing to boast about. Paul is saying. Oh, and and guess what? If that's not enough for you, why don't I quote another hero? David. Verse 6. David says the same thing. When he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. And he quotes David's psalm in Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered... Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count, or it's actually the same word there, credit against them. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised? Because remember, they're thinking, you know, and we might do this in our culture. Is it only for the baptized? Is it only for the churchgoer? Is it only for the evangelical? Is it only for the Pentecostal? Is it only for the Lutheran? You know, we got our things... Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also, or also for the uncircumcised? Because in this church, we're uncircumcised people, right? We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Again, under what circumstance was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised, after you were baptized, after you started going to church, after you showed up in the right Bible study, after you read the right preachers or listened to the right podcast, or before? It was not after, Paul says. It was before. Abraham's faith was credited to him and his righteousness before he was circumcised. Jump to verse 13. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be the heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, those who depend on their spiritual legacy, well, my grandfather was a pastor. I grew up in the church. 
If those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing and the promise is worthless. Because the law brings wrath. The law brings an awareness of sin. An awareness that there's no way out except the rescue of Christ. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. That's a whole other conversation. We can unpack that on another day. Verse 16, therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all of Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. And then I love this verse, skip down to verse 21. Abraham being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. Now it doesn't mean, if you go back and look at the life of Abraham, he does not live this out perfectly. But he was persuaded that God's promise was true. Now he did try to get in there and help a little bit. But he was persuaded that the promise was true, right? This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. You seeing some redundancy here? Uh, The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, here's the good news, but also for us. So many, many hundreds years later, to whom God will credit righteousness for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification or our righteousness, right? Two things I want to talk about. I want to talk about faith real quickly, and then we're going to spend most of our time talking about this line, credited righteousness. The first thing I just want to mention is faith because it's very tempting when we read this passage or even in our life to look at faith as a work. That suddenly I need to do the work of faith. But the scripture uses this language and it's nuanced, but by grace through faith. That the faith is not a work. It is not something you have to work up. But friends, we're doing it all the time. There are people who they feel like because they have some doubt that they don't have strong enough faith and so their faith isn't good enough. And in that kind of thinking, they have just turned their faith into a work. I got to work up a faith. There are people who think, I I, got to get louder. If I'm louder, then my faith must be stronger. And then there's those who are, I got to be quieter. And then my faith is more serious. And we're making faith a work. We're making faith a performance. And faith is a grace. It is a receiving of a gift. I'm not saying it's not a choice. It is a choice. It is a free choice that we have to choose to receive that grace, to receive that gift. But friends, if you are feeling like, I got too many doubts. I hope it encourages you. I'm a pastor in a church, and I doubt all the time. But you know what I lean into? Two passages of Scripture are are just my, my rock. One is that moment when the guy wanted Jesus to heal his son. And remember, he says, Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. And then the other passage in in Hebrews, 
for Jesus is the author and the finisher or perfecter of our faith. And there are so many times that I find myself praying to Jesus. I just say, Jesus, you know, you know I feel weak. You know I feel doubt. But I thank you for authoring my faith. And I'm going to trust you that you're going to finish that faith. That you're going to complete that faith. So we have to be careful that we don't suddenly now make faith a work. And faith a performance. And we judge people on how their performance of faith is. Okay? But the thing I really want to talk about is this credited to him as righteous. And as you can see, I think we've got a slide that shows, uh, look at that. That's just kind of like how many times, in, in chapter 4, that's chapter 4. Credited, 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 credited. What does that even mean? Well, <laughs> I want to tell you this. This crediting of righteousness is so important to us. It is the kryptonite to your anxiety. You've been trying to figure out how to get rid of your, how to be anxious for nothing. We've been talking about that as a church. Understand this truth. That your righteousness has been credited to you. It is the anti-venom to our striving against temptation and our striving against sin. It is the pathway to freedom. It is path, the pathway to live the truth of the scripture that we have been set free from sin, from the power of sin that is over us. This credited to him as righteousness, this is what theologians call imputed righteousness, okay? And if you read the King James Version in chapter 4, they, it actually uses the word imputed. Imputed righteousness. It was imputed to him as opposed to credited. Because basically the word uh, imputed means to reckon to the account of another. To give to the account of an, uh, another in such a way that it changes their status. It changes the status of that account. So if somebody credits to you as a gift, as a grace into your account, it changes the status of your account. You went from poor to rich, right? You went to, from $37 in that account to $37 billion in that account. It's a legal term. It means to reckon, to give to, to change the status of. So biblically, our status is changed, the scripture tells us. When we come to faith in Christ, what is credited to us, what is imputed to us is the very righteousness of Christ. What got put into you is Christ's righteousness. We go from lost to found, from a slave to sin to united with Christ, from an enemy of God to a friend of God. God's righteousness was credited to your account the moment you believed. Christ did the earning. He earned 
our righteousness for us through his perfect obedience and through his perfect sacrifice. By absorbing God's wrath through his death and conquering death through his resurrection. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says this. This is such a beautiful verse. It says, it is because of him, because of God, that you are in Christ Jesus. Who has become for us wisdom from God. What does that mean? Oh, that means, he says, that is Christ who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Christ has become our righteousness. And he imputes that. He credits it to us. He has become our holiness. He has become our redemption. What is true of Christ and the New Testament, Paul will say this ad nauseum in his letters, what is true of Christ, when you come to faith in Christ, when you become a Christian, what is true of Christ is now true of you. Get your brain around that. Theologians say it this way. We are by grace what Jesus is by nature. We are by grace what Jesus is by nature. When God looks at us, and I, I hear people say this, and I, I, I never feel comfortable when people, people will say, you know, when God looks at me, I know he doesn't see me, he sees Christ. I don't know if that's helpful. Because I'm not quite sure that's true. Because, but, because what that says is that God never sees me. And I, I, I live by the fact that God sees me. He knows me. He hears me. I think maybe a better way to say that is that when God looks at us, he sees us. But he sees us clothed in the righteousness of Christ. When he sees us, he sees you. He, he sees you. He sees your personality. He sees all that is you. Clothed. You'll see that language a lot with Paul. Put on, put off. You've been clothed with the righteousness of Christ. No longer under the power of sin. Remember the power of sin? The power of sin is that sin controls you. But when you become a Christian, sin no longer controls you. You are united with Christ. The language that Scripture uses of a Christian is in Christ. Christ is in you. You are in Christ. All that is true of Jesus is true of you. Do you believe that? That's mind-boggling. Scripture says we are co-heirs with Christ. Everything that Jesus has, we have. Jesus even says, as the Father has loved me, and imagine how the Father has loved Christ. Is there any imperfection in the love of the Father for Christ? No. As the Father has loved me, Jesus says in John 15, so I love you. 
I withhold nothing from you. All that I have is yours. This is the profound truth of the passage. I think I've, this verse I've quoted almost every week. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God took our unrighteousness and he wore it. He put it on Christ. And by Christ wearing our unrighteousness in that moment, when we believe we are then clothed with the righteousness of Christ. That's why I'm wearing a coat. Because I want you to see this. You see, friends, we have been clothed, we were born in a condition of sin, under the power of sin. We are hopeless and helpless against sin. But on the cross, and we talked about this last week, Jesus takes our sin, right, and he wears it. He puts it on himself, right? He who knew no sin became sin, and then he clothes us, and it's the language of Scripture in other places, with righteousness. He puts his righteousness on us, and when we face sin as Christians, as followers of Christ, we face temptation and we face sin wearing the righteousness of Christ. But my fear is so often I keep wearing my old coat. I face temptation and I put back on the old coat. Now, that's not really possible because I think you can't take off the righteousness of Christ. But figuratively, I keep thinking that I'm wearing this coat. And I forget that I am wearing the righteousness of Christ. And friends, this changes everything. We do not face sin any longer. Certainly, we don't face sin as an irreligious person would with no regard to God. I get that. But again, I think we can be tempted to face temptation as a religious person, striving, forgetting that we already have God's righteousness, that we are not performing any longer. You see, when we face temptation as a Christian, we recognize wearing Christ's righteousness that we do not have to give in to sin. It's a game changer. I'm not talking about perfectionism. I want to be careful. That's a, a theological idea that, that you, and I get where they, they're getting it from because they're saying, they're recognizing that in Christ we are no longer slaves to sin. We, we have Christ's righteousness. We don't have to give in to temptation. Perfectionism says that, that you could, once you become a Christian, never sin again. Now, the, 
folks who kind of propagate that idea in their writings, they acknowledge, if you read them, they acknowledge that they've never known anyone to do that. Okay. And of course, uh, John says that in 1 John, if you say you have no sin, you're a liar, right? But I think we maybe have swung way over here. We're still wearing this coat. We're still believing that I can't do anything about it. I'm just a sinner. That's just who I am. And we face temptation clothed in this coat, wallowing as a victim to sin and temptation, can't help ourselves, spiraling into guilt and shame. We decide it's just our identity, right? But this is what's true of us. We have all that Christ has. We face temptation the same way Jesus faced it, right? When Jesus went into the wilderness and faced temptation, he had a couple of things. He had some resources with him, right? He was righteous, and now so are we. We are approved by the Father. That's what justification is, the approval of God. Jesus had heard the approval of God. You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased before he went into the wilderness. Those same words are spoken to us in the moment of our belief, the moment of our salvation. You are my child. You are my adopted child. He went into the wilderness with righteousness. He went into the wilderness with the power of the Holy Spirit. God himself, and we go into temptation with God himself living in us. Remember, Jesus said in John, he says, I'm going to go to the cross, I'm going to die, I'm, gonna, I'm going there, and, and, and he knew he was going there to, to conquer sin, to free us from sin. And he says to his followers, he says, you know, it's better that I go, because when I go, I'm going to send my Holy Spirit and this is, of course, the mystery of the Trinity. But I'm going to send my spirit, and he's not just going to go with you. He's not just going to whisper kind advice into your ear. He is going to come and indwell you. He is going to come and empower you. He is going to be the spirit of truth. And he is going to illuminate truth for you so that when you face temptation, you know what is true. And the truth will set you free. Because what is true? Who you are. What is true? Whose you are. You are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You belong to God as his child through Christ. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Christ doesn't just give me righteousness, he is my righteousness. So here's what I want to encourage real quickly. Stop wearing the old coat. Take it to the goodwill and get rid of it. Or don't really do that. You don't want to give it to anybody else. Stop the lie that says this is just who I am. I'm a gossip. Can't stop. 
I, uh, I lie, and it's just who I am. I come from a family of liars. I live with envy and jealousy and covetousness, and that's just who I am, and I better have a glass of wine to stop it. Because that's what we do. We anesthetize ourselves. Peter says this in 2 Peter 1. He says, by his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. We've received all of this by coming to know him. Because when we come to know him, we receive his righteousness. Wear your new coat. This new coat of righteousness gives you unhindered access to the presence of God, a God who never leaves you, never forsakes you. And it's why. You see, for the Christian, one of the most beautiful words is repent. We see it as an ugly word because we've heard it like repent or you're going to hell. No, it is a beautiful gift. You see, the the non-believer, the non-Christian What they need to do, and I get the nuances of repentance, but they need to stop and place their faith in Christ. They need to start new. They need a new, they need to become a new creation. But for those of us who are in Christ, we are a new creation. We have the righteousness of Christ. And so the word repent, which just simply means turn, is such a gift because if I know I have the righteousness of Christ, already the approval of God, when I, when I mess up, guess what I get to do really quickly? I just get to turn. I just get to turn back to God. And he's right there. He's, he's not far away. He's right there. I messed up. I turn. I immediately receive his forgiveness, right? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, not in a week, not in a month, not after he sees if we stop doing it again and again. No, in that moment, this is how we face temptation. We turn and we look at Christ. We look at what is true. This is what we do when we sin, when we mess up. We turn We look at Christ. We know what is true. We receive his grace. We don't stay stuck in sin and shame. I had a seminary professor who gave this illustration. It was in the 80s. So it might not be an appropriate illustration right now, but I'm going to use it anyway because it was so helpful to me. Um, So don't go political on me with this. But um, this was the illustration. It was the 80s. It was the Cold War. The wall had not come down. Okay? It's a little history there. Um, and, and, but he told, he said, this, this, is what, this is what is true of us and what Christ has done for us and, and how we now face sin. He said it's like a, a Russian performer who had lived in Russia and had the KGB following them all the time. And, and Bob, the KGB agent, was always following this performer. And, and when, when the, Bob's, the KGB said jump, they said how high, they jumped, they said yes, they said you go this way, okay, I'll go this way, right? Well, this Russian performer defects and they come to the United States. Uh, They were performing, and they slid away, and they stay in the United States, and they become a legal citizen of the United States, right? And they're living in New York City, because they're a performer, and they're walking down uh, the streets, and they see this troupe of Russian performers who's come to uh, New York to perform, and there's KGB Bob. And KGB Bob, who for so many years had had control over this former 
Russian who's now a United States citizen sees her and he says, jump. And she jumps because that's what she's always done. But she doesn't have to jump anymore. And friends, that's what we're doing with sin. We think we have to give in to it. We think we have to obey it. And guess what we get to say to KGB Bob? No. Guess what you get to say to temptation? No. Because you have been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. All that is his is yours. No one can take away your identity as a child of God. Would it be true of us that we face today and we face tomorrow different? That we face temptation clothed in Christ? May it be true. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.